0: Yeah. Ah, uh, yeah. Good evening, Manila. Good evening, Masalansis. Welcome to the Meaning Stream. My name is Akira the Dawn, and tonight, we're going in on a very special Meaning Wave Live event, Meaning Crisis and Chill. Meaning crisis and chill. It's a beautiful day to be alive. It's a beautiful day for, uh, you know, meaning crisis to chill, frankly. A beautiful day for meaning crisis and chill. That's the day it is. We're going in on Viveki John's epic. And uh, tonight is Plato. Plato and the cave. As we traverse the history of human consciousness. Searching for uh, the root cause of our crisis and meaning and uh, solutions. Solutions, baby, solutions. We're looking for solutions. We're doing the archaic revival. We're going into the past to uh, find what we might want to take forward into the future. As we stride together boldly, uh, joyfully, bravely to destiny. Yo. I suggest you smash that like right now. I suggest I suggest you do that. I suggest you uh, copy the link of this broadcast. I suggest you paste it into a tweet or a uh, email, a group chat, a Discord, a uh, some some social media thing or the other. Let the people know we're broadcasting live on YouTube. uh, YouTube does not send out our notifications. And that's cool. We got each other by Joe. What up, WordXP says? Just hopped in. What I missed? What'd you miss? You missed uh, nothing. It literally just started. You're bang on time. You are bang on time. And when I say bang, I mean bang. Bang. Bang, bang. Shouts out to Chief Keith. Great day, Woo. Uh, what happened today? What wow, happened, we had a morning stream that was very joyful and Christmassy. Very lovely Christmassy morning stream. Uh, I worked on I worked on uh, the first music video. I worked on the first music video of 2021, which is about 90% complete and very, very glorious. And I engaged in a quiz, with, a Christmas quiz, with a whole gang of my family, from the UK. In the UK. Uh, three of my brothers. Mum. Auntie and Uncle. Quite a punch. Quite a bunch. And you know, it was initially it was like cause you're on you're on you're on the internet, you know, you're in these uh, celebrity squares. You know, you're in, doing this weird celebrity squares thing cameras and th- th- people's things aren't quite working properly, but we got it working. And after a little while, eventually, it was actually quite nice. And by the end, it was very lovely. And uh, the Dons, the Texas Dons, won the quiz. We won the quiz, baby, yes we did. It was a draw, you know, it was a draw. Uh, there was like six teams or something. Team Don and Team uh, Redditch. Uh, drew. So there was a, a dance-off, you know, for the for the uh, to win the thing, and of course Hercules came in and, and killed it, baby. Hercules killed it. He did a dab, you know. He, he confused everybody. They couldn't come back from that, you know. He did a powerful seven-year-old boy dab, and uh, so we won, you know. It was wonderful, and Hercules was very excited. He said, "What do we win? What do we win?" And uh, one of my brothers said. You win whatever you want. Your dad will buy you whatever you want. He said, Really? And everyone said, Yes, 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 yes. I was bamboozled. Bloody family. Bamboozled by the whole bloody family. Hercules is very happy. Getting his heart's desire. quickly ran on a conference call with one of his homies. I heard the homie say, Tell, "Get him, make him get you a PlayStation 5. Luckily, said, I think they're all sold out. Anyway, he ended up getting an Among Us hat for his Among Us character. And the happiest thing of all was that he discovered that his uncle, his uncle Marek, uh, Maz for short, Uncle Maz, could you believe it, could you believe it? Uncle Maz uh, plays Among Us. And Hercules is so excited because they're going to play it together. So he's going to play Among Us with his uncle. But he's very, very excited. So it's a very really wholesome day, very wholesome day. I hope your day was wonderful. We're about to go in with that meaning crisis and chill, baby. Let's play in the cave. Play someone in the cave today. The place out in the cave. Before we go in with the place and in the cave, we have a thing around here that we we do. We call it the international high five. It's a powerful exercise. It's some kind of psycho technology, I guess. It feels like it works, you know. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Uh, so today we're gonna break it down something like this. Let me know where on earth you are and what's the most important thing you learned at Christmas time. What's the most important Christmas lesson you can think of? What's up D-Man? play Rave. You're ready. Ow! Ow! Adam says, PS5 to a hat. That's a win for the pocketbook. Yeah, it wasn't even a real hat. You know, it's a digital hat. 99 cent hat. Amazing. <laughs> ah. Adam Synthman says, what will you do for April? Who's April? Who's April and why, why does she need things doing for her? What's up MC Chubby, what up Adam Synthman, what up Robert Easley. What up, Lewis Johnson? What up, Fool Killer? Says, let's get platonic. <laughs> yes, indeed. What, a, what about Monsieur Slapahoe? Says, finally here for a live stream, waiting for work to finish. Well, we're glad you're here, Monsieur Slapahoe. What a wonderful name. Hey, hey. Says, get loose of those shackles. Indeed, indeed. Word XP says, bloody family, because they are literally blood. Yes, indeed. <sighs> Keep crafting. Abbotsford, BC says, redacted. Robert Easy, Chicago. Here, and the most important lesson is that it's spending time with family. Professor J.Voltz Michaels, uni, uh, says, Ave Akira, and Chef. D-Man, most important thing I learned was the gift of giving is the best gift. Sheila says, happy Tuesday. Zach Sousa, Boston, Massachusetts, I learned to appreciate that people think of you enough to get you a gift and that they actually care about you. People care about you, Zach, they care. They care. Daniel Pazzi says, is this the Netflix and chill live stream or am I in the wrong place? I don't know what you're talking about. I have no idea what you're talking about, Daniel Pazzi. This is the Meaning Crisis and Chill on the Meaning Stream. Out of Montana, most important thing I've learned is redacted as well. That's nice. What's with all this redaction? Very redactive. Word XP, Toronto, Canadian. Christmas is the time to give as much as you can, lovingly, without any expectation. But also, all the Christmas lessons are reminders of the things we should always do. That's right. Oh, it's Christmas taught me that rituals were important, hey Mike Bess says, I had my own meaning crisis today. I forgot to charge my Bluetooth speakers for work and couldn't listen to as much meaning wave as usual. Disaster! That is a horrible disaster. That is absolutely dreadful. I feel very bad for you. How awful. I hope that never happens again. What did you learn, Mike Besses What did you learn? Be prepared. Like the Boy Scouts. Be prepared to have the Boy Scouts invaded by girls. Were they prepared for that one? I don't know if they were are boys allowed in the girl scouts these are the pertinent questions that nobody asked what's up adam thank you for the support it says meaning crisis and chill is enjoyable for me here's a token of appreciation well god bless you god bless god bless god bless word xp says g that means busting your bluetooth you have to imagine sing it in your head work the imagination so long as you're not singing imagine in your head that would suck. Uh, I, I don't know, I don't know about you, but uh, I could happily never hear that song ever again because uh, I, I, I just, I just see Gal Gadot looking really pleased with herself, thinking she saved the world by getting a bunch of uh, formerly, I don't know, employed. Formerly employed actors to sing into FaceTime. Hey, we did it, guys. Yes, you did. Now, never do it again. 2020 in a nutshell. No, this is 2020 in a nutshell. I, I, no, I'm not doing that one. I am not doing that. This is the season, but we're not quite there yet. Yo, D-Man says, I hope I'm not imagining this stream. You might be. This whole thing might be your imagination. This whole thing might be your dream. I might just be a part of your dream, you know? And if so, shit. Glad to be here, baby. Richard Jung says, meaning crisis and chill is dope. Recently, I was wondering if Sun Tzu or Miyamoto Mushashi might ever make it into MAZ universe. Keep on wondering, baby. Keep on wondering, I ain't telling you things like that. I ain't spilling no secrets here. Robert Easley says, internet historian did a great spoof on that. On what? Foolkiller3644, the book of the five rings is legit Richard Young. I. Aye. Aye. Make some noise brothers and sisters, smash that like. We are about to go in. Mason says, helping all the regular people by singing in your mansion is pretty cringe. They didn't even help anybody. They just sat, they just just did cringe songs. What's his face? Mumatu. Mumatu. What's his face from Zoolander, you know? And Anchorman. William Farrell. That's it. The guy with the really massive filter. He looked like he didn't want to be there. Oh my goodness. God bless them. I wonder if the... Uh, I wonder if the uh, absolute colossal failure of that will be Wonder Woman, whatever it's called, 1984. Is it called 1984? Is it really? Is it called that? I can't remember. Maybe I'm imagining it. Anyway, I wonder if that will bring some humility to that lady. Hmm. Adam says, that imagined wave was cringe. Yes, well, you know, David Icke has that theory that, you know, the universe is is run by interdimensional shape-shifting beings that feed off fear, you know? My theory is that he's half-right, but they don't feed off fear, they feed off cringe. And in 2020, the powers that be were really trying to harvest some serious cringe. And that explains an awful lot. They are hungry, they need to get back to their home world, they need a lot of cringe, a great deal, and they got it, so hopefully they bugger off now and leave us alone. Weddixpeak says it is called Wonder Woman 1984, as if they didn't read the book. it is. Maybe they're just trying to hijack the search term. Ew. I mean, what happens now if you search for 1984? Did you get Joel? or do you get Grado? Did you get both? Has it confused things? Who knows, not me, I'm just a humble beat gardener. Adam says Monsters Inc was a documentary. Quite, quite. That did shock me rather, I remember when I saw that, I was like, wait a minute, I have seen this story before. I've read this one before, I've heard this one before. A former footballer with a nice mullet told me about this years ago. What's. Anyway, uh, International High Five O'clock, I do believe. Three. Two. One. Five. Five. What has meaning? What has meaning? Hold that thing. Hold that thing. Shake that thing. Do that thing. Mm. Mm. Insert rigorous noise here. Woo! Nice. What has meaning?
1: What has meaning? Oh! Yo!
0: Alright, I'm going to play a song, and then we're going to get into it. Smash that like, post that link, all that business. Let's get the gang in here, and then let's get after it. Well then, without further ado, let's get into it. (laughs) This is The Meaning Stream, and tonight, we will be live waving John Viveki, his Awakening from the Meaning Crisis series, epic, legendary, glorious, useful. And we're going to be doing so in the Cave.
2: Welcome to the fifth episode of Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. Last time we talked about how the Axial Revolution came into Greece. We first reviewed uh, Pythagoras, uh, and then we concentrated especially on the figure of Socrates in the Socratic Revolution. And we saw, again, how issues of meaning, uh, wisdom, self-transcendence are so tightly bound up together. We took a look at Socrates, And we took a look at how he has a particular conception of wisdom in which what we find salient or relevant is closely closely coupled to what we find true or real. And those two things, those two concerns, what is transformative of us and what is true of the world, are meant to be held together. And this was pivotal in uh, Socrates' method of trying to get people to realize how much the, all of us are so prone to having those two come uncoupled from each other and we become subject to bullshit and to self-deception and that a life that is beset by self deceptive uh, self-destructive behavior is not a life that's worth living. That a way to afford human flourishing is by developing the skills, the wisdom to keep those two tightly coupled together and Socrates was so convinced of how important this was in fact to making a life meaningful, that he was prepared to die for it. And as I mentioned, there was somebody who was a follower of him, um, who was uh, at his trial, not present at his death, but was deeply traumatized and uh, affected by his death. And this is, of course, Plato.
1: Plato. Plato.
2: Now, if Socrates was controversial, Plato is beyond (laughs) uh, even that statement. Every year there are hundreds of books written about Plato. Uh, This is why Plato is uh, one of the foundations. Uh, Not only because of his ideas, but as we'll see, there's an inexhaustibleness to Plato and his writing. We can come back to Plato. As a culture, we come back at different times and see things we did not see before that are transformative. And as individuals, myself uh, personally, you can come back to Plato at different times of your life and Plato speaks to you in ways he did not speak before. I I want you to remember that because I'm going to try and uh, suggest to you that that is a better model for what we mean by something being sacred than it being filled with some kind of supernatural presence. That what makes something sacred is that it's an inexhaustible fount of insight and intelligibility that's transformative of of us. That's certainly the way many people in the ancient world uh, read Plato. They were deeply affected by him. I would go so far as to say that Platonism or Neoplatonism as Verslewis and others argue, is sort of the bedrock uh, of, of Western spirituality. And we'll come back to that. Now Plato was traumatized by the death of Socrates. Um, it was deeply, I think, uh, disturbing to him. Why I think that is because he keeps coming back to it and. Uh, and trying to try and understand. He wanted to understand how is it that the city he loved, the city he belonged to, Athens, could have killed this man that he admired and loved so deeply. How is it that his beloved Athens killed his beloved Socrates? So, whereas Socrates had this sort of dilemma given to him by the gods, Plato has this dilemma given to him by the death of Socrates Plato wanted to understand how people could be so foolish. And so what he's going to do is he's going to take that two worlds mythology that we talked about, the the, the lower, less real world. And remember, it's mythological. It's not meant to be literally two worlds. But he's going to take that two worlds mythology and he's going to do something with it very different than what the Hebrews did. Remember, the Hebrews turned it into this is things are fallen now, but we're moving towards a future. We're progressing towards a future. So they give a historical answer to how we move from the world of illusion to the world of reality. Plato is not going to give a historical answer. He's he's going to give a scientific answer, because Plato is deeply influenced by the natural philosophers that we talked about last time. And what Plato is, in fact, going to do is he's going to create the first psychological theory in history. With Plato, you can really see the beginning not just of science, but the beginning of cognitive science. Psychology is a discipline begins in a very important sense, and I don't mean this trivially, like, oh yeah, it started with that. Plato's psychology is still currently relevant right now in important ways, which we'll talk about. So let's get into that, because this is, again, going to take us into these interconnected issues of meaning, wisdom, self-transcendence, altered states of consciousness, etc. I hope to show you how Plato, in trying to answer the question of how Athens could have killed Socrates, is ultimately influenced not just by Socrates, but also by Pythagoras. We know that Plato spent some time with a Pythagorean community, and he seems to have gone through something, some kind of training in that community. So, Plato develops a particular theory about why human beings do foolish things and there's different aspects of it but a good way to think about it is uh, by relating it to something that we're all familiar with. This is the experience of inner conflict. Inner conflict is when you have two strong motives that seem to be working against each other. And you can see how this is immediately going to be relevant to existential meaning, to meaning in life, because very often we feel most distraught, most anxious, or the most sense of being stuck when we have such inner conflict, when we're divided against ourselves in an important way. So here's a classic example, right? So I like chocolate. I more than like chocolate. has a a kind of uh, deep attraction for me Um, so recently I lost about 20 pounds right so I went on a diet Um, now dieting is one of the most unsuccessful thing that human beings can do Uh, the recidivism rate is 95 percent recidivism means that within a year 95% of people who are on a diet are back to their pre-diet weight so the diet industry has a five percent success rate even though it makes Billions of dollars. I mean, I wish I had that success rate for my job. I wish I only had to succeed at 5% and I was given millions of dollars for that kind of work. Because, and you have to ask yourself, well, why does that work? Well, it works because of the problem. It's such a pressing problem that people will grasp and pay money in anything in the hopes that it might work. Because what's the problem? Well, the problem is, right, it goes like this and we'll talk about the cognitive science about this. I know I should lose weight. I, I, there's the evidence, it's clear, makes rational sense to me. I should lose weight, yes, yes, okay, I should lose weight. And then I go home, and they're sitting on the counter with some chocolate cake, right? And, 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 and that doesn't quite capture, right? It's not just sitting there. It's like, it's like, it's like humming with this chocolatey goodness, right, ah, It's drawing me in. It's like sort of And so you have to end up sort of often just eating the chocolate cake. Or another example you might be familiar with, procrastination. I know my students face this, right? Yes, yes. I have an essay due in two weeks. two weeks. There it is. I should work on my essay tonight, because if I start now, I won't be rushed. I know if I'm not rushed, I'll do a great job, I'll have more time to research, I'll be able to change my mind. I should start working on my essay tonight. Somebody calls up, want to go out for some drinks? Yeah! And you're gone. you you procrastinate. So, we are clearly beset by this inner conflict. And Plato, Plato gets this great insight. He gets the insight that there seems to be a deep connection between inner conflict and self-deception. Self-destructive self-deception. So, Plato posits an idea that has become again so natural to us that we just think, oh yeah, of course. But again, he comes up with it. Plato comes up with the idea that we have different centers in the psyche. And each center has a different cognitive relationship to the world and motivates us in different ways. And he represented this mythologically, right? He said, there's like a part of us that's like a man. I want to say something here right now, because although Athenian democracy is horribly sexist and treats women horribly, so remember that context, because what's intriguing is how much Plato was able to rise above that. Plato argues that women should rule as well as men, that women should be in the army as well as men. Now, he doesn't perfectly free himself, of course, from sexism, but given the context, I think it's very admirable the degree to which he was able to do it. Nevertheless, he does use this idea of a man that's in your head, and represents reason, and that man is motivated by the truth, by truth, what's true. So he cares about truth and falsity. That's what he cares about, right? And, right, scope, right? It can go into very long-term goals. And it can deal with very abstract entities, like your health or a essence. right? Very abstract entities so this is you know health and I should lose weight it's gonna take me several months and I should do that because it's true that if I lose weight my health will improve so why don't I just do it well because opposed to it there's a monster right And it's sort of in my stomach genitals Right? And it represents appetite. Now it does not work in terms of truth and falsity. It works in terms of pleasure and pain. Very different set of norms. Now there's nothing wrong with operating in terms of pleasure and pain. If you don't have a capacity to work in terms of pleasure and pain, you're dead. So Plato doesn't think the appetites are evil. What he wants you to grasp is that they operate according to different principles than the man. Okay, so they presume long-term goals? No, immediate. When do you want the cake? I want it now. Now. I'm going to the party now. Right? <coughs> works in very it does it works in terms of very superficial properties. All I care about the cake is how it looks. It looks yummy. I don't have some in-depth analysis, right? It's just ah chocolatey sweet. So very superficial. Again, that's not necessarily bad. Often in life and death situations, a superficial appraisal is exactly what you need. I don't need to know a great deal about the inner workings of the tiger. I just need to know, oh crap, deadly, get out of here. Okay. No, no. These are opposite to each other. Now. I put a space between here, obviously because I'm setting you up for everything thing that Plato talks about. But before I do, I want you to notice what Plato's doing with Socrates here. So Socrates didn't really have a theory, he had a practice. Socrates' practice, if you remember last time, was to get people to realize how often what they find salient is rushing ahead of what they find truthful. Do you remember that? What Plato is saying is that's not a coincidence. The reason why that happens is because we have different parts of the psyche that work this way. This makes things salient to you, really catchy, motivates you urgently right now. This is the part that you use to understand. And see, here's what most of us face. This monster is constantly racing ahead. Of what we understand. Do you see? What Plato is doing is it's explaining why we are so prone to bullshit. Why salience often exceeds understanding. We are perpetually vulnerable. and we'll talk about why we have this. Now, let's go back to the dietings example. What what helps though? There's certain strategies you can use, of course, to improve, right? how you frame things, and we'll talk about that later. But typically, what's one of the things that improves people's chances of losing weight? They join a group, like Weight Watchers, right? Or they join a study group to avoid the procrastination. Why? Well, here's an important thing. You're not just a biological creature. As I've been arguing throughout, you're also cultural. You have evolved across, you're the result of evolution that is across several species in which you come wired to learn about abstract symbol systems, use technologies, both physical and psychotechnologies. So you have a lot of powerful cultural, cultural sociocultural motivation. So, he compared this to a lion because lions are social animals. They're quite sort of and lions have been associated with sort of honor. Because that's eh, right? That's what this works in terms of. It works in terms of honor and shame. Right? Honor is to be respected by those you consider your peers. To be shame is when you feel that you have failed to be gained respect. From your peers. We should not confuse shame and guilt. They are not synonyms. Right? Guilt is when you feel that you have failed to meet your own ideal of who you should be. Shame is when you have lost the capacity to get respect from your peers. Now what's interesting is that and this is Plato's point. This part of us can pursue sort of intermediate scope. Because we're cooperating with other people, it doesn't operate just short-term. But it doesn't quite operate abstract theoretical. It, it, it works within the socio-cultural domain. So it can pursue sort of mid-term goals. Not just immediate goals, but not sort of abstract, symbolic goals, but socially agreed upon, shared goals. And it works on sort of the cultural aspects of things, not their abstract meaning or their superficial meaning, but their cultural, their shared meaning, the way we can share it with other people. Notice how much you want to share with other people your experience. So I, I see, I, I've been saying this for years, and I still see people doing it, even people that I've taught it to. People will reliably do this. They'll be eating something. They'll trying it for the first time, and they'll go, oh, this tastes horrible. Have some. They'll give it to somebody else. Because you want to have that, in addition to whatever immediate response you're having, you want there to be a shared cultural meaning to what's happening in your experience. And there's good reason for that, because as I've been arguing throughout, your connection to distributed cognition is one of the po- most powerful ways you increase your cognitive power over the world. Now, he there he sort of represents this as being like in the chest, and this has to do, because we, we feel m- m- a lot of our social emotions and motivation in the chest, you know, your your pride and honor and, you you know, shame, right? Things like that. Now, this is problematic for us. What should go there? Because the Greek word doesn't have a direct English equivalent. Sometimes people put emotion there, that's not quite right. Sometimes people put the word spirit there. That's closer, but the problem with spirit is it has all kinds of spooky associations with it, right? I'm not going to translate it. I'm just going to leave it as is. This is your thymos. This is the part of you that is motivated socially. So, here's an interesting idea Plato has, right? They, there is a lot of potential conflict in this system. There's a lot of potential conflict in this system. What you wanna do is get it properly ordered. Now, when you don't order it, think about what this means. Salience and understanding and participation get out of sync with each other, and then we're subject to bullshitting. We're subject to self-deception. The more inner conflict we have, the more likely we are to engage in self-deception, because these two others sync, and the more likely we will become very egocentric. So when people are suffering, especially inner conflict, anxiety, they tend to become more self-centered, even selfish. Because when you're experiencing inner conflict, you're getting sort of a threat signal. Like things aren't right. And when people are under threat, they tend to become very egocentric. Again, that's adaptive. Now, we're going to come back to this, but we want to do a little bit of cognitive science. Why do, like, why do we, like, what, why? Okay, it makes sense that, like, right, we have this as a motivation because we're social creatures, right? One of our greatest adaptations is our ability to cooperate together. So, you know you throw me into the African savanna on my own and I'm dead soon because like I don't have great claws I don't have great teeth I'm look at what a silly structure right I'm teetering around on two feet almost always losing my balance I can't run quickly everybody can see me from a long distance because I'm towering above the grass my throat and my vital organs are nicely exposed for any predator this is a bat okay but you know what I can do I can get together with a bunch of other human beings and we can get some pointy sticks and some dogs and then we can kill everything on the planet. Our ability to work together has always been adaptive. So we know why this is here. Why is, but why does this have so much more power than this? Well, there's, there's, a, there's an actually an important reason. And this has to do with some work started by Ainsley and others on what's called hyperbolic discounting or temporal discounting. And what Ainsley and other people found is this pattern of behavior exists across species. It's not just something that human beings engage in, you can find it across species. It's even more universal than something like flow. It's not just universal amongst human beings universal across many species so this is a deeply adaptive mechanism what does this mechanism look like okay so this is called discounting and this is a little bit confusing discounting is how much you are reducing the salience of a stimulus the more you discount the less salient something is the less it stands out for you the less it grabs your attention this axis is time in a tense sense this is the present And this is the future. So what I'm showing you is what's happening to discounting, which means how much a stimulus is losing its salience. And this is what it looks like. This is what the curve looks like. Okay? So a present stimulus has a large degree of salience to it. Remember the monster? Something that's in the future, especially as it gets into the far future, much less salience to it. That's why the monster can override the man. But why? Why do we like, Why do we have this? Well, this is actually very, very adaptive. That's why it's a universal phenomenon. How is it adaptive? So I want you to think about doing your, your, you're about to do something here. I don't smoke. I do diet, but I don't smoke. Uh, But let's suppose I was doing this. Here's right now, and I decide to smoke a cigarette, right? And that could have one of two options, right? You know, I get a cough here or I don't get a cough there or something like that, right? Now, notice, and I'm doing this very simplistically. I'm not saying that whenever you do something, there's only two effects from it. I'm just doing it simplistic in a very simple manner so you can understand the point, okay? Now, the probability of now happening is 100% because it's happening. The probability of each one of these happening is 50%. Now, if if it goes this way, then there's two more effects. The probability of each one of these is 25, right? And so on. So do you see what's happening? As you move into the future, the probability of any one of these events occurring is going down very fast. Now here's the thing, this is, this is actually adaptive. You should pay less attention to things that are less probable than happening. That actually makes good sense. The less probable something, an event is, the less attention you should give it. Imagine if you didn't have this. Imagine if you didn't screen off things that were low in probability. Think about how you would be overwhelmed by all the possibilities. So if I get out of bed, I might twist my ankle slightly. And that might slow me down getting to class. And if I slow down getting to class, that might have an impact on my mark. And that might cause me to fail my course. And then if I fail my course, that might disrupt my degree. And that might cause me to fail in my career. And and then I'm gonna end up in Buffalo alone, married to a lamp or something. Now that's ridiculous, right? Now it's possible. It's not impossible, except the last part, you can't really get married to a lifetime. But, right? In fact, here's a hypothesis I have. Now, notice the word I used, please. I think one of the things that goes wrong in people who experience generalized anxiety disorder is that this is not working well enough. It's not screening off and making low salient, low probability events. So, highly anxious people find things salient that they shouldn't. They find low probability things too salient. So this is really adaptive. This is why you have it. But there's a problem with it, and this is a problem with any adaptive machine. And you're going to see later why this is the case. Okay, let's go back to the cigarette smoker. I smoke, and through a long chain, this is me dying in Hamilton. Right? This is the event of me dying in Hamilton, lung cancer... in my left lung. I'm not going to write these all out. This is me dying in Hamilton of cancer in my right lung. This is me dying in Toronto, cancer left, right. This is me dying in Burlington because... so on. There's all these different deaths. Now here's the thing, each one of those deaths has a low probability of occurring. Right? You see that? Each one of those deaths has a low probability of occurring. But here's the thing about me, and I bet you I share it with you. I don't want to just avoid death in Hamilton, although that would would be a particularly bad death. I don't want to avoid just dying in Hamilton. I'm from Hamilton, so I'm allowed to do that. I want to avoid death. I want to avoid all these deaths. Now think carefully, and I'm using this very technically, but I'm speaking accurately. I want to avoid death in the abstract. I don't want to avoid this death, or this death, or this death, or this death. I want to avoid all possible deaths. I want to avoid death in the abstract. Now here's the thing. The chance of each one of these deaths is very low. But if you pool them together, the chance that cigarette smoking will lead to a premature death is very, very high. Okay, so what does that mean for me? The hyperbolic discounting blinds me to this, because it's not very probable. Blinds me to this, because it's not very probable. Blinds me to each one of these, because each individually they're not very probable. But in blinding me to each, you know what it blinds me to? What they share in common. It blinds me to what they all have in common. And what they all have in common is a premature death. By blinding me to what they have in common, what they abstractly share, This adaptive machine actually has me take another puff on the cigarette and sets me on the course towards cancer or emphysema. Do you see? Now please remember this. This is gonna be a theme we're gonna be coming back to again and again and again. I mentioned it before when I talked about flow. The very machinery that makes you adaptive is the machinery that makes you prey to self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior. Part of what meaning and wisdom have to do is they have to wrestle with that unavoidable reality. The unavoidable reality is you can't can't throw this away. You can't throw away this machinery because if you throw this adaptive machinery away, you're doomed. You can't get out of bed because you're overwhelmed by crippling anxiety. You can't throw it away, but you can't just let it run untutored because then you smoke the cigarette, you eat the cake, you go to the party and you harm yourself in a self-deceptive, self-destructive fashion. So what do you need to do? Here's the monster. What you need, and what we developed, is we developed an ability, especially here, frontal lobe area, to form abstract thought, to abstract what is in common, in the distant future and symbolically represent it to ourselves. That's what the man does. The man can grasp the abstract thought of avoiding the premature death. But you say, but but the man is so weak. The man's weak because you don't want him to be able to shut this off. You want him to be able to override it, but in a very minimal sense because that's so adaptive. See, so Plato is deeply right. So, in fact, I think Plato is so deeply right, that's why we keep discovering this division. Freud divides the psyche into these three things, the superego, the ego, the id. You know, there's, there was a, a movement in the 90s in neuroscience to talk about, you know, the reptilian brain, the mammal brain, and the neocor... We keep rediscovering this platonic division. But Plato had an interesting idea. He said, "You know what? The man can learn. The man is capable of grasping theory. Abstract symbolic representation of the case." Now the lion really isn't capable of theory, but what the lion can be do is the lion can be trained. You can use your reason to train your lion. How do you do this? Well, this is this is, this is where Socrates is so relevant, right? And this is, this is why Plato writes dialogues. Because what Socrates did was he took reason into the social arena. Socrates goes into the marketplace and dialogues with people. There's this social interaction is happening. And the social interaction is being wed to rational reflection. Into inspiring people to try and overcome self-deception and so using a Socratic method the man can train the lion and then the man and the lion together can contain the monster not kill it but tame it and what you want is you want a that that teaching of the man, the training of the lion, and the taming of the monster, so that something happens. You reduce as much as possible the inner conflict. So this is like, for Plato, Plato describes wisdom as an internal justice within the psyche, in which the man has been taught, the lion has been trained, and the, the monster has been tamed, so they can get along together as much as is possible. This this is what's known as an optimization strategy, right? If I let the monster rule, everything else shrinks to a minimum. What you want is you want the right coordination of the parts of the psyche so that each can live as much as it possibly can without putting the other two in danger. When you can get that inner harmony, that optimal relation, so each is living as much as it can without putting the other ones in danger, this mutuality of the most existence, this is, for Plato, this is to experience a fullness of being. This is to be as fully alive as you possibly can be. It is also to experience a kind of peace because your inner conflict has dropped. So this is, this is very powerful. One of, one of your meta drives, in addition to all the drives people have, they want to have whatever they're having without inner conflict. They want to be at peace with themselves. Now, this of course is a powerful meta drive that you can tap into. Because if you have a strong drive within you, to get this inner justice, to realize wisdom, to get this fullness of being, then I can appeal to it. I can appeal to it Socratically. But notice that this has, this, has, this has an important component to it. Because as I reduce inner conflict, my self-deception goes down. And as I reduce my inner conflict, I'm less egocentric. Both of these things are making me more in touch with reality. So, I'm reducing inner conflict. But the effect that's having is, right, I'm getting a clearer vision of reality because my self-deception and egocentric, egocentrism is going down. Now, that matters because, as we've seen before, you want to be in touch with reality. You have a meta drive. Philosophers have various thought experiments for talking about this. One you know, I'll sometimes do with students is I'll say, imagine the following: right, you go home one day and your parents say, oh, "Come come here, I want to show you something." And you say, "What?" And they take you to this hallway that you've walked down a thousand times before. And they they press on a part on the wall that for you has never meant anything. And when they press, a, a door opens and there's a room in there and there's TV screens, and there's videotape, and there's pictures of you at all stages of your life. And then they say the following to you. Just before you were born, nine months before you were born, we were hired by the government to have you. This is part of an experiment. The government gave us scripts to memorize. And we did this as we right, as a part of a government experiment. We don't actually love you or care about you at all. We've just been following the script, doing what we've been doing because the government has hired us to do this. But we're obligated now that you've turned 21 or whatever to tell you the truth. We don't care about you. Now, we still have to keep doing this. When we'll leave the room, we, you can forget all about this if you want. Right? And we'll just say that we what we've always said. We'll tell you how much we love you. We'll make sure that your needs are met. Just know right now that none of that is how we truly feel. OK? Now ask people, how would you feel? And they'd go, well, I w- I'd be devastated. But I, but I say, but nothing's changed. They're going to still say all the same words to you. They're still going to treat you exactly the same way. And what people say is, well, it's no longer real. Here's another thing I'll do with people. I'll say, how many of you are in, are, are in satisfying personal relationships? Quite a few people put up their hands. And then I'll say, how many of you would want to know that your partner was cheating on you, even if that meant the destruction of your relationship? Almost everybody puts their hand up. They're willing to destroy this relationship that's giving them so much happiness because they don't want it to be fake. They want it to be real. And we'll talk a lot, we'll talk later about why this need to be real is so important. But I want you to understand what Plato's talking about here. Notice that two of your most important meta drives are being met in the platonic model. You're reducing inner conflict, and you're becoming more in touch with reality. Now that, that feeds on itself in an important way. I get better on picking up on real patterns in the world My skill at picking up on real patterns is improved because I get a clearer vision, I get better at tracking real patterns. Right? But what does that mean? Well, as I start to get more inner peace, I start to be able to pick up on real patterns, I get the skill, the vision ability. But of course, what I can do is I can apply that to myself. Socratic self-knowledge. As I get better at picking up on real patterns, I can apply that to myself. I can get better knowledge of myself. As I get better knowledge of myself, I can better teach the man. When you To be a good teacher, you have to know your student better. As I get better knowledge of myself, I can teach the man, I can better train the lion, I can better tame the monster. So, notice what's happening here. I improve a little bit my skill at picking up on real patterns. I use that skill on myself to increase my self-knowledge and get better patterns. Which means I reduce my inner conflict. As my inner conflict goes down, I get a clearer vision of reality. As I get a clearer vision of reality, I get better at picking up on real patterns, which means I improve my self-knowledge, which means I reduce my inner conflict. And you see what happens? This starts to spin like this. These two sides feed into each other and reinforce each other and improve each other. And this is wonderful for you because You're becoming less inner conflicted and you're coming more in contact with reality. Now, Plato has a famous story, a parable, a myth in the sense that I'm talking about in this this series. It's called the parable or the myth of the cave. And it's a way of talking about this, the relationship between these things. Notice two things here. You need to remember this. Notice how much self-transformation and getting more in contact with the world are interconnected. This is participatory law knowing. I'm not over here as an impartial, impassive, sorry, impar- impartial passive observer, just forming true beliefs about this. I have to change myself in order to see the world, and then the world changes, and then that puts a demand on me to change myself. And myself, the world discloses itself in a new way, and so on and so forth. This is participatory knowing. I'm not just changing my mind. This is not just knowing with my mind. This is knowing with the very machinery of myself. Now, what's Plato's myth? Well, here's the surface, right? Pathway going down. That leads into this inner cavern. There's a fire here. There's people chained chained into chairs. So all they can do is look at the back of the cave. And there's other people walking in front of the fire and it's casting shadows onto the cave because of the firelight, and they're hearing the echoes. And what Plato says is, people take the shadows and the echoes to be the real things. Because they're chained, they're caught up. But what happens is an individual gets free. And what does that individual do? That individual turns and sees the fire. And that allows them to realize that the shadows and the echoes aren't the real things. The shadows and echoes. And what happens is the person's ability to notice the real patterns, as opposed to the merely correlational patterns, is changed. Remember, we talked about that? people start to see, they start to realize, oh, these are what real patterns feel like as opposed to what I thought was real. You get the taste for reality development. And that taste means they start to look around and explore and then they realize there's a path, there's light coming through it. And then they start a journey upward. Now, notice how this journey works. When they take a step forward, they're blinded by the light. And they have to wait. They have to wait for their eyes to adjust. The self has to be transformed. And then once the eyes have adjusted, they can see how to go. And then they take another step. And then they're blinded again. And there's this slow process. And Plato keeps talking about, at various stages, they have to stop because they're blinded. And then they adjust. And then they gain the ability to see where they couldn't see before. It's this participatory transformation I talked about. And eventually, they come up here. And they look around. Right? And what what are they looking for? They want to see the source of the real light, the light that's making them, allowing them to pick up on the real patterns. Where is this light that shows the reality of things coming from? And not only is it showing the reality of things, this light is the source of the life of things. Where is this source? of understanding and life. And if they look around, and of course they glimpse, because they can't stare at it directly, the sun. And it's overwhelming, it's beyond their comprehension. But they see it, and and it, it fills them with a kind of awe. And of course, what they do is, they go back down into the tunnel rapidly, right, and they get here and they try to tell their fellow prisoners what they saw but of course they're stumbling around because their eyes don't work anymore in that darkness and they're saying things that don't make absolutely no sense to these people and so they ridicule them and if they could they would kill that individual And of course this is an allusion to Socrates now first of all notice that contrary to what people think enlightenment is not just an eastern idea This is a myth of enlightenment, of coming into the light. It's a myth of self-transcendence and self-transformation. It's a myth of coming, and I mean myth in the sense that we've been talking about. It's a parable of coming into greater and greater contact with reality. See, Notice the story is, right, you pick up on real patterns, that challenges you, it sort of blinds you, and then you transform to pick them up, and then you're enabled to move forward, then you confront those real patterns again, and you're doing that cycle that I talked about. There's a Greek word for this, ascent, called anagoge. Anagogy. This is the anagogic or the anagogical aspect of Plato's idea. Notice what he's doing. He's taking the, you know, the movement between the illusory world and the real world and he's turning it into this account of how you can make your lives rationally more meaningful. You can become more fully alive and more at peace in conjunction in concert with you coming more and more in contact with the real patterns that make sense of reality. You can satisfy in a mutually supporting fashion your desire, your meta drive for inner peace and your meta drive to be in contact with reality. This is what Plato calls wisdom, a fullness of being. We become more and more real ourself, ourselves as we become more and more at peace so that we can more and more realize the real patterns. We conform ourselves more and more to reality and you may say this is kind of a crazy story is it is it because here's a story from 1999 there's all these people and they're trapped in a world of shadows and unreality it's called the matrix and they need to wake up and be welcome to the real world and the character that's in there is neo Neoplatonism, the new man. People flock to that movie. And all it is, is this. With some great martial arts and some interesting science fiction special effects. This parable, this is what I mean about a myth. This isn't a story from the past, right? The reason why you go to The Matrix and people still watch it and talk about it is because it's a myth. It sings to you. It speaks to you now because it talks about perennial problems that you face. Problems of the psyche being in conflict with each other. The problem of being uh, caught up in illusion, out of touch with reality, and it presents the possibility of liberation and self-transcendence and a fullness and enhanced meaning in life. It's a myth of wisdom that is perennially relevant because it's not about the past. It's about what's happening in you right here, right now. I want you to notice a couple things about this. I want you to notice first how reason and spirituality are not opposed to each other here. They're inseparably bound together. I want you to notice how Plato is putting Socrates, the Socratic project, Socrates is how you, you know, get the man to teach the lion, how you get to realize your own foolishness, with Pythagoras. Because here's, right, the self-transcendence, the rising above yourself, the radical transformation of your consciousness and cognition that Pythagoras talks so much about. Now this is such an entrancing and enriching and empowering myth, a perennial parable, that it's going to be a constant refrain throughout the West. People are gonna be coming back to it again and again and again. And I wanna talk, talk now more I want about to talk the Pythagorean now. side of Plato. Just to bring out a few things. So, so, so Plato, talks about, like he uses a term, eidos, and that gets translated into the word form, and when people hear the word form, they hear shape. It also gets translated into the word idea. When they hear idea, they think of concept or an idea in your head. That's not what Plato means. The, when he, he's using that word, it's much closer to our word like a paradigm. He's using a word to talk about the real patterns that we're discovering in reality. Now, there's an interesting thing about these real patterns. They're both the access, the pathway we have to understanding something, the pathway we have for getting at the reality of something because those are the real patterns. But they're not just the affordance of our knowing. The real patterns are also what makes something be what it is. So this is work also from the psychology of concepts and how people understand things. When you ask people what a bird is, they'll say the following. Oh, yeah, well, I know what a bird is, right? It has wings, feathers, beak. And it flies. There you go. That's a bird. They give you what's called a feature list. And then you think that, and then you can get involved in a very long process, which I think has largely been something of a mistake. We'll come back to this. No, not totally because it's important in science, but of thinking that the way I understand something is by having a definition of it in terms of the, the, the correct features. Now, there's a problem with this. Although people believe that this is how they know what a bird is, they're mistaken in an important sense. Because I could satisfy this definition in the following way. I could put a couple of wings on this table, a bunch of feathers, beak, and then throw it all up in the air. I have wings, beak, feathers, and flight. Do I have a bird? No, I don't. I have a bloody mess. Because what's missing is something more important. What's missing is the structural, functional organization. The way all those things hang together. The way they're structured together so that the bird functions as a whole. What's missing from this is the structural, functional organization that makes the whole greater than the sum of its parts. Germans have a great word for this, gestalt. In English, we don't. The Greeks have a good word for this. It's the word logos, although a word that's being discussed a lot today. uh, I think it needs to be discussed a little bit more carefully. Now, here's the thing I want you to realize. Remember we talked about how you pick up on real patterns? And a lot of those patterns, you're not picking up an explicit sense. You know what a bird is. You have some sense of the logos of bird, But if I ask you, what is that logos? What is the structural functional organization? And most of that, most of what makes a bird a bird is found in that logos. But if I ask you, what is the logos of a bird? How do these all structure together so they function as a whole, in which the whole transcends simply an accumulation of its, you can't tell me. But that's what the research shows, in fact. You can't tell me. Your grasp is intuitive. So notice something very interesting here. You often have an intuitive grasp of the logos of things. And the logos is form. Where form doesn't mean shape. Form means something more like formula. It means the structural functional organization. And that form, that logos, is not only how the thing is, right, integrated together. It's how your mind can be integrated with it. Remember, this logos, this real pattern, is not only how you know something, but it's also the pattern that makes it be what it is. So this is a very different idea of knowing. You saw it already in the myth of the cave. But when I really know something, I I conform to it. I become like it in some important way. I get in my mind the same real pattern that's in the thing, because that real pattern is what allows me to come to know the thing and to enter into that reciprocal realization with it. Now this is going to be an important idea. This is an idea that's going to be taken up by Plato's Greatest Disciple somebody we're going to talk about next time time. when we're together that's Aristotle thank you very much for your time
0: It's to be alive Thank you Dr. Viveki Thank you Viveki Johnny Thank you Johnny V Make some noise Meany Wave Autonomous Zone For Johnny V in the place to be what? What's up World XP Appreciate you baby he says thank you for this So relevant to my life right now Yo this stuff always relevant huh? This stuff is the eternally relevant What's up Chris Champagne Appreciate you What's up, Adam? Appreciate you. Shout to everybody else. Mikey Mike says, I know I wanted that to go on longer. Yeah, baby, me too. I could have gone on longer. Hey. Akira. Maybe we we'll start doing these as double bells. Preamble and a lot less postamble. Although it is nice to, you know, uh, mull on them. You don't want to be binging these things. You want to be able to think about it a little while afterwards. There was a lot of ideas in there, right? There was a lot of ideas in there. What, what was your, what was your favorite takeaway? What did you, what was your, what was, uh, Mikey, Mike's, There's so much insight tonight. Uh, well, what, what was, what did you glean? What did you glean, Fijero? Right, let done. I Appreciate you sharing this. Meaning Wave University is the best. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Foolkiller3644. Now for the inner conflict of whether to watch the next one right away or wait till next week. Hey, baby. That chocolate cake be calling cool out to foolkiller, huh? That wisdom chocolate cake. Ow! Ow! Well, if you feel that you fully digested this one, you're eager to run on to the next. You can, nothing is stopping you. And then next week when we when we're here, you know I listened to this a couple of times now, and uh, you know it definitely, definitely, definitely bears revisiting. There's a great deal packed in here. Like your boy, like your boy was saying, you know about Plato, his very self. You know, I listened to this about a year or so ago last, and uh, I'm hearing new things. Yo, Self Insight. After ages working from home, getting a magical, mystical education about the illusion delusion. Feels like it works. Yo, right as Donna, you view the world differently as you change. I want to watch again. Yo, you'll be different tomorrow. That's why perfection don't exist, and that's why chasing perfection is a fool's errand. What's perfect to you today will not be tomorrow, because tomorrow you will be different. So you you gotta put a cap on things and keep moving. Yo. What's up, Walking More Poet? Appreciate you, baby. Says, I had started these before Akira did, and I purposely listened several episodes ahead so I can repeat and retain. The meditation sections are pure fire. Mason says, how about, watch them all? Watch Meaning Crisis and chill every week, then watch them all again. Whoa. D-Man says, I learned there are 99 ways to die, but smoking won't be (laughs) won. Word XP says, the idea of the man training the lion to tame the monster left the biggest mark on me. The man. Yeah. Yeah. I wanna to go to the source material on, that. I, material on that myself. I haven't read the source material on that. Uh, so I picked up a book recently. I love that whole notion. I used to read a a comic book that had a similar thing going on. Defcon25Blade says Neo was also an implication that he wasn't the first one. Neo often stands for new. He was the new one, the new model, the iPhone X, the iPhone XXX. And so on and so forth. Time being a flat circle after all. WordXP says Neo is also an anagram for one. Because he's one. (laughs) Matthew Coe says all cultures are based on myth. They are grown off of myth. Robert Easley says, be unrealistic. Realistic people are bent by the world, but the unrealistic people bend the world to them. Steve Jobs' reality distortion feel. You should, uh, if you haven't read it, I do recommend the autobiography, sorry, the biography of Steve Jobs. I can't remember the name of the guy who wrote it, but it's that great big fat one. It's bloody big, it's bloody long, but it's just fascinating, primarily for... uh, Observing the reality distortion field of Steve Jobs, as the people around him called it, the way that he would just bend the world to his will. In a way that seemed like magic to those that witnessed it. Foolkiller says the discounting of salience really stood out to me. XP says, I'm concerned about Matrix 4, hope to the mighty father it's good. I would let go of that hope, I would abandon all hope, uh, I really really would, I really really would. I'm pretty sure it will be dreadful, uh, ideologically possessed, uh, horror and uh, in no way useful at all. That's my expectation. now. I could be pleasantly surprised, and the pessimist is never disappointed. But fool me once, yada yada yada. Come now, come now. Anyway, we already did, we already did the Matrix in the Matrix. The Matrix story was already done. You know, uh, we we could do uh, just do do the story again with some different characters. Do the story again with some different characters, and then we can get a little bit of a different. Uh, vantage point on the idea. Yo, yeah. Defcon says it would be it could be good if they took back the MMO plot they gave away. What was that? <laughs> Mikey Mike says we all saw the Matrix. You all saw the Matrix. Hey, Stray Design says just like Cyberpunk being breathtaking, staper, Staker. Take a step back and take breath. Yo, I'm getting a, I'm getting a refund on Cyberpunk. I managed to play that thing for like 48 minutes or something. It's like, yeah, I got tired for this shit. I ain't about this life. No, I wanted to, to relax myself a little by playing a video game, you know? And Uh, I hadn't really read into cyberpunk too much, I was under the impression from the marketing and what have you that it was basically like Grand Theft Auto in a dystopian future and I thought well that will be joyful and fun, what But it's not that? It's not that at all. So do you know what I did? I bought Grand Theft Auto San Andreas for $10. And it's so bloody good! Yo, this, this game is nearly 20 years old, and it is far superior to what most of these fools are up to these days. Bloody hell. DEFCON25BLADE says, is it really just first-person GC in the future? No, it's not. It's not that at all. It's an RPG. They they marketed it fraudulently because they thought they'd make more money that way. The whole thing is this amazing cock. But it's kind of screwed them over. Apparently, they've left 50% of their projected revenue. Surf so for the, who knows, I, whatever, I don't care. Ah! Never mind that nonsense. Grove Street for life. Yo. Anyway, meaning crisis and chill, baby. Meaning crisis and chill, baby. That's what it was, and it was great, and we'll be doing it again next week. After Christmas, we'll be back. We'll be, I mean, you know, we're not going anywhere, we're here every day. Tomorrow is Dune. Tomorrow is the penultimate Dune. Penultimate Dune. You dig, you dig, you dig. That means uh, just uh, penultimate, the one before the ultimate. Ultimate means the, the final, yeah? <laughs> hey, what's up, Demon? Penultimate, Dune. Then it's Christmas Eve. That is Christmas. A meaning wave Christmas. We're going to be here. We'll be here in the morning. We'll be here in the evening. Like always, baby, I told you. I told you. We stick to our stuff. Over here. <laughs> So I'm gonna get out of here you guys can go to uh, you can go to the discord and, and carry on chatting about this I mean if you really want it to be like super serial you could go to the discord and have a watch party where you press replay on this thing. And talk about it in real time and stuff of that nature you have the power to do all these things you know you're a you're a sovereign powerful individual you're a hero you know you are the hero not just of your own story but uh you're a hero in the multiverse story that we're all involved in you know this epic multiverse adventure baby you're a crossover superhero you're a crossover superstar superhero baby and i'm glad to have you in my adventure Glad to be involved in the building of the new monomyth with you. Yes indeed. Mikey, 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 Mikey says it's Christmas Eve Eve Eve. And if that ain't worth a worth a you know a, an explosion noise, I don't know what it is. Whoa, whoa, whoa! So thank you all for being here. Thank you to those who supported this endeavor. Uh, thank you, Adam, Chris, Word XP, Insight of the Ages and Working More Poet. If you want to support the wave, I would suggest going to MeaningWave.com and covering some merch. Uh, copper sound kit, copper sample pack. You know, copper, 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 copper. Copper Cap, Shouts out to Copper Cap, Woo. Uh, a proto-Meaning Wave song I did. Uh, I did a proto-Meaning Wave song uh, when Copper Cap first appeared on the internet, you know, and he, and he, uh, he was shouting about people being mean to him because he was a ginger, and gingers having souls, you know, I did a, I did a song. Sampling that. Anyway. Rare, rare, rare. Rare activities. Robert Easy says, Tuesday and Wednesday are becoming the best days of the week. They the red, rare days, baby. And Breeze DeQuest says, I told people that meaning Wave exists in the gym today. I, I was just about to say. If you want to support the wave, and you spent all your Christmas money, uh, but you still want to do something useful, baby, that's the thing you could do. Let them know wave exists, baby. Yes, it does. So thank you for that. Thank you to those who let the world know the meaning wave exists. Thank you to those that support the wave. Thank you to those that come here with their energy, and thank you to those that are doing their best, baby, to play their part in the building of the new monument. We're getting out of here. It's time for that. That bye that. But 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 by that three. That two. That one, that bye-five, baby, bye-five. Bye-bye. Right, Sweet dreams.